Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is Politics with me, Amy Walter, on The Takeaway. We are still one year away from the 2020 Iowa caucuses, and we already have 10 Democrats who have officially announced their candidacies, plus another dozen or so who are seriously thinking about it. The latest to announce, Cory Booker, the senator from New Jersey. Together, we will channel our common pain back into our common purpose. Together, America, we will rise. I'm Cory Booker, and I'm running for president of the United States of America. Over the course of the next weeks and months, I'm going to talk to as many of the Democratic hopefuls as I can about why they're running. I find sitting down with these candidates early in the cycle to be very helpful. It's a chance to get them to speak more broadly about who they are and why they're running. Once we get into the real campaign, it's hard to get this much time with a presidential contender. And even if you do, most of that time is spent responding to immediate issues or controversies of that day. There's less time for reflection. This week, I sat down with Senator Kirsten Gillibrand from New York in her campaign office on Capitol Hill. The crowded second-floor space was filled with all kinds of posters, official and unofficial, and young staffers. The senator's dog was also there. I started the interview with a softball question. Literally, a softball question. You're very busy. I'm very busy. You've got a lot of jobs. Yeah. Do you have time to play in the Congressional Women's Softball game? I do, and I intend to. I will. Okay, background here. For about the last eight or nine years, Senator Gillibrand and I have faced off against each other every June in the Congressional Women's Softball Game. This game features members of the Capitol Hill Press Corps, we call ourselves the Bad News Babes, versus a bipartisan, bicameral team of members of Congress. Besides providing an opportunity for us to trash talk each other and pull hamstrings and twist ankles, the event raises money and awareness for young breast cancer survivors. Okay. I've also heard rumors that you are recruiting some new members of Congress. Is this true? Yes. Like who? Well, certain Alexandria, she needs to be part of our lineup. And has she said yes? She said maybe. And she said she was interested. I also have been recruiting Martha McSally back, one of our new senators, uh, who did play one season and has very good skills. Uh, we're definitely heavily recruiting in the House with all our new women candidates. Yes. 120 women running who won. They are amazing. A lot of them are young. A lot of them are athletic. A lot yes. of them might even have experience. By the way, the press has won the last three games. Just saying. Okay. Now let's transition to a different kind of playing field, the 2020 campaign. Senator Gillibrand announced her candidacy on January 15th on CBS's Late Show with Stephen Colbert. I'm filing an exploratory committee for President of the United States tonight. Tonight. And she's done a lot of interviews since then. One that got a lot of attention was from the Rachel Maddow Show. About 10 years ago, Gillibrand voted to increase funding for U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE. But recently, she's called for the abolishment of the agency. Maddow asked her about her previous position and why it changed so drastically. Well, I don't think it was um, 
driven from my heart. I was callous to the suffering of families who want to be with their loved ones, people who want to be reunited with their families. And I recognize, as we all do, that immigration and diversity is our strength as a country. It's always driven our economy. It's the American story. Mm -hmm. And so looking back, I just, I really regretted that I didn't look beyond my district and talk about why this is an important part of the United States story and why it's an important part of our strength. When I spoke to Gillibrand, I asked her about this apology and how she squares that with the fact that while campaigning in Iowa, she sold herself as a candidate who was well positioned in the state because she represented a red rural district. Is this about changing your mind or changing to fit the political moment? If you are unwilling to change your mind when you're wrong, then you should not be president of the United States. You should not be a world leader because it takes courage and compassion. It takes both things to lead, especially if you've gotten it wrong. And so what I've shown in my 12 years in public service is I will fight for you and I will fight for your kids as hard as I'll fight for my own. And it's because I'm willing to listen to you first. And if I have something wrong, I will learn. I will grow. I will recognize my failing and I will build a better answer and a better solution and a better future. So you have to have humility. Without humility, you can't possibly lead. Like so many Democrats running in 2020, this election isn't just about what they stand for. It's also what they stand against, namely the man in the Oval Office today. I asked her specifically if she'd be running if another Republican were in the White House. I just know that I have been called to do this in a way that I could have never imagined. Um, I am so uh, committed and so determined to make sure he is a one-term president. And I do believe my vision and my values is different, that I can bring people together. I believe I can bring the country back together again. I believe my vision for how to solve these deep problems is strong, and I want to share it with American voters. I want to hear from them what's on their mind and what's keeping them up at night, and I want to work hard for them. Today, she positions herself as a fighter for families and children. And as a mother herself, she says her family is fully behind her run. Interestingly, my family... um, they're very committed and they just feel like what President Trump has created in this world is wrong. He thinks it is dark and divisive and harmful. And my husband knows that I may be the best messenger to um, fight against that. Uh, and my children just know that their mommy's a fighter and doesn't give up. And they are they got my back. I think Henry's the one who's going to have the biggest challenge because he's 10. So it's less time with me. And so we've thought about ways I can bring him on the campaign trail, ways uh, he can get incorporated in, in things that he wants to do. I think he wants to take over my Instagram account for a day or two. So there's lots of fun things that Henry can do on the campaign trail. Um, But, you know, I'm a mother first. One of the biggest criticisms many Democrats levy against Gillibrand is for leading the charge against Senator Al Franken, who resigned after several women came forward to allege sexual harassment and inappropriate groping and touching. Some Democratic donors have cited this as a reason to not support or fund Gillibrand in 2020. I asked her if she was surprised by the backlash. I understand what backlash looks like. I've watched it happen to women in many industries over many years um, on different issues. And sometimes people aren't comfortable when a hard truth is spoken, especially when it's somebody they care about, someone on the team, someone who's great at their day job. I've watched it happen in the U.S. military, um, the retaliation rate for women who come forward to, or men who come forward to 
not only say they've been raped, but um, or harassed or uh, assaulted is still at 59%. So those are men and women just seeking justice, and they are blamed. They are not only retaliated against, but they are blamed. So backlash, retaliation is real. Uh, there's many people in the world in the country who do not want um, the status quo to be disrupted. You look at institutions like the NFL, institutions like Congress, institutions like college campuses today. Uh, they would rather um, disbelieve a, a woman or a man who's been assaulted or raped rather than allowing any process for justice. So that is the landscape on which this country is on. Um, Many people, we all um, miss Senator Franken, and he was a friend to many of us and did good work. But the truth is, he had eight credible allegations uh, that were substantiated and corroborated by the press and people who looked at it. The eighth one happened to be a congressional staffer. Enough was enough. It was not something that I could remain silent on any longer. And I'm a mom of boys, and as you are as well. And the conversations I was having at home with Theo were disturbing. And Theo would say, Mom, why are you being so tough on Al Franken? And so I needed very serious moral clarity and said to Theo, listen, you may not grab or grope a woman anywhere on her body without her consent. You may not forcibly kiss a woman without her consent. It is not okay for you. It is not okay for Senator Franken. And the question is, Amy, for anyone who is looking at this issue is, do we value women? Because obviously we don't. If it's okay, if you're a harasser or a groper, if you're somebody on our team, somebody we love, somebody we value, or somebody who's good at their day job. That's what the military tells me every day. They say, yes, but he's really great at his day job and he's so important. And, you know, she's not, she's less important. She's junior. She's not important to the unit. He is. And so I'm not going to believe her or there's not enough evidence or whatever the issue is. And so they won't even do the investigation. They won't even allow for a review of what happened. Uh, you see the same thing in college campuses. They won't even allow an investigation or a review because they just want it to go away. So the question is on all of these issues, whether you're talking about harassment, whether you're talking about groping, or far more serious allegations like Harvey Weinstein and other people who are accused of, of, of criminal conduct, the question always comes down to, do we value women? And if we don't, then we don't take these things seriously. And if we do, we do. We also spent time talking about her plans for health care reform and calls from her and many of her colleagues to provide Medicare for all. So when I ran for Congress in 2006, I walked around the district, talked to people about what was on their minds, what they cared about, what their worries were. Number one issue back then was access to health care, number one issue. And they did not feel that the insurance companies had their back. They could not afford their co-pays, their deductibles. They could not afford... Um, their premiums, and they were just getting priced out of the market. And back then, there was still a lot of discrimination in the system. Um, women were charged more just because they were women. People with pre-existing conditions couldn't necessarily get insurance. Uh, and a lot of people just didn't have access to any insurance plans. And so that's why the work that we did under Obamacare was so important, because it met those needs. But back then, I said, well, how would you feel if you could buy into Medicare at a price you could afford? Something like 4 or 5% of income. And overwhelmingly, these two-to-one Republican voters said, oh, yeah, that would be really helpful. If I knew I could get basic health care 
for four or five percent of my income, I'm in. Like that would be unbelievably helpful to me and my family. I'd have access, number one, for those who didn't have access. And number two, if you were one of those people that kept getting priced out, that's affordable because it's a it's a fixed rate based on your income. So that's what I ran on in 2006. Well, buying into Medicare is very different from phasing out our current system. So when Senator Sanders was working on his bill, I said, can I please write the part about people buying in, about this transition? Because I think the transition is really, really important. And so I got to write the part of the bill that says anybody could buy in at 4% of income, a lot like what I ran on in 2006. Because the truth is you need competition in the system. What the insurance companies are doing today is they are charging us too much money because most of them are for-profit companies. When you are a for-profit company, you have a responsibility to your shareholders. That's what corporate law in America today says. That is your premium first responsibility is to your shareholders. Your job isn't to achieve human health. Your job is not to make sure your patients are well. Your job is to produce for your shareholders. And so decisions get made by insurance companies every day that is harmful to human health. No, you may not spend that second day in the hospital. No, you may not have the drug that your doctor has prescribed. No, you may not have this procedure. It happens every day because they are not aligned. And so if you really care about healthcare as a right and not a privilege, which I do. I believe every American has a right, a human right, to have access to healthcare. Coming off the 35-day shutdown, I also asked her about the current battle over funding for the border wall. Would any funding for a wall be okay with the Democratic caucus? No, a wall is ineffective and hateful. It's not the right approach. Border security is common ground. We can find resources for border security. And it, it could be a tall fence or what we currently have? That's what they can talk about. But building a wall, as many of my colleagues have called it, a medieval wall, is just backwards and harmful and not who we are as Americans. Thursday evening, President Trump told The New York Times he thinks any talks in Congress are a waste of time and he's prepared to declare a national emergency to build the wall himself. Do you think that the wall is immoral? I think it's it doesn't stand for who we are. It's it's it, it is it is a message that is problematic and immoral. The message about it is that we are afraid of immigrants and that we have to build a medieval wall. It's, it's, it's how President Trump talks about it, it how he demonizes people. It's the fact that he's locking up mothers and children in for-profit prisons, spending all that money for for-profit prisons that could be spent in national security and border security and actual anti-terrorism work. The money's being diverted. You know, those, there are many missions for border security and immigration, and one of them is anti-terrorism, and money is being taken from that mission to fund his for-profit prisons. I've been in these facilities. One of the ones I saw for boys my son's age, 10-year-olds to 17-year-olds. Henry is 10 and Theo is 15. They were locking these young boys up in a Walmart that has no windows, over-air-conditioned, all wearing the same clothes, in bedrooms that look like institutional prisons, no personal effects. Every bed is made exactly the same as you'd see in a prison. Uh, they walk in lines like you would see in a prison. When I got to ask the boys anything, like what, which I was restricted from doing over and over again uh, by the people that ran that facility, and when I finally got a few moment conversations, I said, well, you know, what, what's the best part of your day? And they said, they like going outside. Well, of any boy, of course you want to go outside. And they only got to do it two hours a day. 
And it's like living in a prison. And that is what our country is doing. I even went to a facility in, in uh, New York where we were taking the unaccompanied minors. Same thing. From the outside, it looks lovely. It's a, it's like it looks like almost like a college campus. And you go on it, there's chain-linked fences around these houses that they live in that they have to be buzzed in and out of. The rooms look like a prison. There's seats outside the rooms for guards to sit at at night. It's just, it's not humane. It's not right. And the second those young men turn 18, an ICE agent will show up and deport them. So that mother that sent that unaccompanied minor away from whatever country she lives in because they're afraid he's going to get recruited in a gang and he's afraid he won't live to 15 and she does what any mother would do is protect her child, he's going to be deported the second he turns 18. And for a lot of these young kids, they don't have lawyers. They don't have the, the, the sponsors that they would be, be going to, the aunt, the, the family member, the friend, because uh, ICE is going into those homes and asking everyone for papers and proof of citizenship, those sponsors are drying up. And so they are staying in these places that are not appropriate for children. Kirsten Gillibrand is a Democratic senator from New York, running for president in 20... Carnegie Hall is one of the most famous concert venues in the world. The first time I walked on the stage, I felt like my feet were moving, but they were not touching the floor. Join us for If This Hall Could Talk, a new podcast that explores the history of this iconic landmark through the unique items in its archives. I'm your host, Jessica Vosk, and together we'll explore how the past shaped the culture we live in today. Listen to If This Hall Could Talk wherever you get podcasts. Cory Booker announced he's also running for president. I believe that we can build a country where no one is forgotten, no one is left behind. That is Cory Booker. I mean, this is consistent with who he is and who he has been for, well, at least going back the 15 years or so that I've been covering him. That's Nancy Solomon, managing editor of New Jersey Public Radio. Well, he's turning 50 in April. Um, He's unmarried. He grew up in a New Jersey suburb. His parents had to sue to integrate the white suburb. It's uh, called Harrington Park. He was a football star in high school. He played football for Stanford. He went on to Yale Law. He was a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford. So, you know, a super smart guy who is very charismatic, a tremendous public speaker, There's a perception in Newark, and I can't say this is a fact. I don't know it to be a fact, but I know that what people in Newark believe is that the white business community recruited Booker to uh, get involved in local politics and run for mayor because he was an acceptable black candidate in the way that they weren't that happy with his predecessor, Sharp James. So there's that perception of him. He struggled with this his entire time in Newark as mayor, that he was an outsider and for this uh, you know, majority black city that he wasn't black enough. Or that he was being bankrolled by the sort of establishment white business community. That too. And then he proceeded, uh, you know, there's a lot to say between when he arrived in Newark and then finally became mayor, but he spent a good deal of his time while mayor traveling, uh, making contacts, raising money. And But there was 
for the city, but it, there was always this perception that he was there as a stepping stone to higher office and that it was more about burnishing his credentials than doing something for the city of Newark. That's a hyper-local view of him. That's not what people all over New Jersey think of him. He's quite popular in the state. But in Newark itself, there was a lot of resentment about Cory Booker and a lot of sort of suspicion that he was just using Newark to advance his political career. And, you know, and what the other folks would say who supported him in Newark was, hey, he can go out of the city and travel as much as he likes if he brings a check back when he comes. And that's what he did. He raised a lot of money philanthropic money for the city, as well as creating, you know, he worked with developers and bringing in business as well. And he likes to note that he still lives in Newark, that he is the only senator, he says, that lives in an inner city neighborhood. Yeah. And I think if you stood on uh, the corner of Market and Broad in the center of the city and asked Newarkers what they think, they'd say he doesn't live there. Uh, But yes, technically, he lives in Newark. No one has actually done any reporting to figure out how much time he spends there at his home. But yes, he lives in Newark. So let's talk about uh, his kickoff here. He released a video that is very hopeful, very aspirational. It seems like he is running as the, I'm going to be the candidate of love and hope, and I refuse to allow myself to be dragged into the debate about darkness and, you know, fighting on the same terms that the president is. This is how he speaks. You know, aspirational is is the perfect word for it. Sometimes I get a little bit annoyed and wish, like, I feel like when I'm listening to him, like, come on, come down off the mountaintop and get real. Like, he just has this way of uh, where when he's talking, you f- you always feel like he's making a speech. There's always an issue of authenticity with Cory Booker and a, a sense that you feel like you are being, that there is a performance being enacted. And you kind of have to wonder what's real. But the fact is, you know, at a certain point, this is real. I mean, this is who he is. Uh, this He's been consistent. He talks about love and belief and faith in everything that he does. And I, I you know, and so it's, it was no surprise to, to see that he is going to run a presidential primary campaign in which you know, that is going to be the message. He's going to repeat that over and over and over again. How do you think he fits into the current group of 2020 contenders? It does seem like ideologically he'll be sort of in step with where the rest of the Democratic candidates are, but it's stylistically. Is that where you think he's going to make his differentiation? Yeah, he's an incredible performer. I mean, you know, this is a guy who ran into a burning building to save a neighbor whose house was on fire or delivered diapers to uh, a mother who tweeted at him during a big snowstorm as mayor of Newark. You know, we're going to get a high level of performance out of Cory Booker, but I don't think we're going to see much difference in terms of his politics from, you know, the kind of mainstream to progressive Democrats. I think he fits right in with them. You know, I I was at an event at the Center for Women in American Politics at Rutgers a couple of nights ago, and this it was a room packed with women who were interested in politics, and 
you just get this really strong sense that women voters, who, of course, played a huge role in the 2018 midterms, are hungering for a woman candidate to run for president. And I think that is the buzzsaw that he is about to run into, is that among progressive Democrats, there is going to be a preference for Elizabeth Warren or Kamala Harris because they're women. And, and Cory Booker's going to, I don't know how he's going to deal with that. Hmm. And the issue of race as well. He's now the second African-American candidate to announce. How do you think that race is going to play in what you've seen thus far about Cory Booker and the primary itself? I think this goes again to the this idea of firsts and a hungering among Democratic voters to have another first, meaning uh, a woman for president. I think that uh, essentially is what's at play here. I think he's African-American. He was the mayor of Newark. That is going to have an appeal to many people in the Democratic Party. But because he's not the first African-American running for president or that could become president, and because Kamala Harris is in the race, I don't think it's going to help him in the way that it helped Barack Obama. Nancy Solomon, thank you so much for coming in and joining us. Thanks for having me. The race for the Democratic nomination is already getting pretty crowded, and there's no obvious frontrunner. And at this point, at least, Democratic activists and strategists I've been talking with seem to be okay with that. They are kicking the tires and are in no rush to buy the first car they see. What's really motivating a lot of Democratic voters and donors at this point isn't ideology or policy, but something more practical. Who can win in November? Remember, you can always find us on Facebook, leave us a comment there, or send us a tweet. I'm at Amy E. Walter, and the show is At The Takeaway. Thanks so much for listening. This is Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. <laughs>